0: Hello everyone, this is Arun, and you're listening to the last episode of Scraps for 2021. What a year it has been for us! Jojo and I are still buzzing and still recovering from the documentary series that we created. This is part two of the sound design for the psychedelic series that we promised. But before we go to the episode, I just want everyone to go and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. We do know that the bulk of our listeners are not using Apple Podcasts to listen to us and potentially use other more user-friendly podcast apps like Spotify or Overcast to listen to us. Just two weeks ago, Spotify just released a new rating feature for podcasts. And so for all the non-Apple Podcast users... Can you please log into Spotify and provide us a rating? Small actions like these go a great way to help us reach new audiences and help us build the quality community when you do such help for us. So please go to Spotify and search for scraps and psychedelics and rate us on the app with a simple star rating. It really is that simple. In just a week, we will have a very exciting news to share with you regarding the next season of Scraps. Until then, sit tight and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Coming to this episode, I wanted to share a few personal stories on how the sound design helped us convey the stories of psychedelics better. I think I already waxed enough in part one of this the episode was released on 24th November and that episode spoke entirely about the introductions or the intros for quite a few number of episodes in the series and how the music and sound played a huge role in setting the episodes up to create a better listening impact. But to start this episode there has never been a better example than the following segment that I'm going to play for you. First It is just the narration as is and as it was recorded by us. This will be followed by a thoughtful sound design to the scene setting. Jojo's masterful script writing for this episode needed that oomph and I was glad to provide it with my fledgling sound design skills. So to create an impact, Jojo decided that she would get An authentic, first-hand account of the battlefield. And this became our intro to episode 7. So, first, here is the audio as recorded. As the trails of RPGs lit up the deserted bazaar in the southern town of Afghanistan, the commanding officer thought that Lance Corporal Bernie had stepped on an explosive. The three-day fight to reclaim this Taliban stronghold was fierce. The blood and the bullets were relentless. Casualties and life-altering injuries were the norm and returning to base in one piece was a rarity. The squad had made significant advances in fighting the enemy back but now they found themselves stuck under interminable and heavy fire. They had one wounded man and their location was perilous. They were on a narrow crossroad with the insurgents hiding in an orchard ahead of them, buildings with possible snipers behind them and a patch of recently turned earth in the middle. All of the soldiers knew that the patch of disturbed dirt was just as likely to be laced with IEDs as anything else. The commanding officer ordered his troops to advance to a cover of a mud wall and the irrigation ditch. The bullets seemed to gain speed, momentum, and the frequency as a last night of day faded. Jacobs, an embedded reporter, would write in a journal, and I quote, That's when I realised that there was a casualty and saw the injured marine about 10 yards from where I had stood. For the second time in my life, I watched a marine lose his. He was hit with the RPG with blew off one of his legs and badly mangled the other. I hadn't seen it happen, just heard the explosion. I hit the ground and lay as flat as I could and shot what I could off the scene. Two marines stood over their injured brother. Their protective stance gave cover to Bernie and left them exposed. Things were not looking good. The first tourniquet on the leg broke. They applied another. There wasn't much to work in terms of supplies or the leg. The screaming was unbearable. The constant sound of human anguish can never be unheard and can never be forgotten. Troops belly-crawled over the rocks and under bullets to drag Bernie to the MRAP, a mind-resistant armored vehicle that accompanied the patrol. You're doing fine, Bernie. You're going to make it. You might have a limp, they joked, but you're going to make it. We got you. Stay with us. Connor, a Marine in his third combat tour, held Bernie's head in his hands. He had been here before and knew what the last breaths that a man takes felt like. The pain in Bernie's legs suddenly faded. His breath grew shallow and incomplete. He was cold. He was scared. But he was not alone. His brother would never leave him behind. No, Marie ever would. Bernie's last breath would live in Connor's mind. Long after the bullet subsided. Long after he'd returned home. Long after he'd tried to reclaim his civilian life. He would never surrender. He would never forget. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class, as old as humankind itself, banished into exile. Okay, so you just heard the plain narration. But now, you're going to see how the added sound design creates an even better impact. If you haven't already done so, this is the time you should scramble to reach for your headphones. Connect them and put them on. Here you go. This is the same segment with sound design. As the trails of RPGs lit up the deserted bazaar in the southern town of Afghanistan, the commanding officer thought that Lance Corporal Bernie had stepped on an explosive. The three-day fight to reclaim this Taliban stronghold was fierce. The blood and the bullets were relentless. Casualties and life-altering injuries were the norm, and returning to base in one piece was a rarity. The squad had made significant advances in fighting the enemy back. But now they found themselves stuck under interminable and heavy fire. They had one wounded man, and their location was perilous. They were on a narrow crossroad with the insurgents hiding in an orchard ahead of them, buildings with possible snipers behind them, and a patch of recently turned earth in the middle. All of the soldiers knew that the patch of disturbed dirt was just as likely to be laced with IEDs as anything else. The commanding officer ordered his troops to advance to a cover of a mud wall and the irrigation ditch. The bullets seemed to gain speed, momentum, and the frequency as the last night of day faded. Jacob's an embedded reporter would write in a journal and I quote That's when I realised that there was a casualty and saw the injured marine about 10 yards from where I had stood For the second time in my life I watched a marine lose his He was hit with the RPG with blew off one of his legs and badly mangled the other I hadn't seen it happen, just heard the explosion I hit the ground and lay as flat as I could and shot what I could off the scene Two marines stood over their injured brother. Their protective stance gave cover to Bernie and left them exposed. Things were not looking good. The first tourniquet on the leg broke. They applied another. There wasn't much to work in terms of supplies or the leg. The screaming was unbearable. The constant sound of human anguish can never be unheard and can never be forgotten. Troops belly-crawled over the rocks and under bullets to drag Bernie to the MRAP a mind-resistant armoured vehicle that accompanied the patrol. You're doing fine, Bernie. You're going to make it. You might have a limp, they joke, but you're going to make it. We got you. Stay with us. Connor, a marine in his third combat tour, held Bernie's head in his hands. He had been here before and knew what the last breaths that a man takes felt like. The pain in Bernie's legs suddenly faded. His breath Grew shallow and incomplete. He was cold, he was scared, but he was not alone. His brother would never leave him behind. No Marine ever would. Bernie's last breath would live in Connor's mind long after the bullets subsided, long after he'd returned home, long after he'd tried to reclaim his civilian life. He would never surrender, he would never forget. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders.
1: How do you mend a broken heart? There seem to be endless TV shows, movies, advice columns, memes, and even more about this subject, enough to fill its very own data lake. But how do you heal a broken mind? Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD.
0: So how was it? Did you like it? This episode was so special because we were sharing the journey of a PTSD survivor and a veteran. Mr. Keith Abraham. Keith's narration was so amazing that all we had to do was to just add elements in the sound design to embellish his personal struggles with trauma and how he found help in a remote village in Peru. Without going into the details, please enjoy the manner in which Keith's story was boosted with some really, really cool sound. First, it is with a personal favorite of mine, Linkin Park's Somewhere I Belong. Krish Ashok, who was a guest on a podcast recently, had this cover version on SoundCloud that I was captivated by and decided to use it with his permission. Krish Ashok also had another cover version of a classic by a maestro in South Indian film music composition that formed the perfect string accompaniment for Keith's struggles. While in reality, The original composition was a romantic piece. Ashok's strings and the cover version that he had produced on SoundCloud made it quite melancholic. And when I asked him, he readily agreed for us to use it. Thank you so much, Ashok, for letting us use it. Here are those segments. Soldiers are trained to never let their guard down and to never surrender, to never give up. As one combat veteran recently told me, Hypervigilance in Iraq is what keeps you alive. Vigilance is as much a part of their protective gear as their bulletproof vests. A state of readiness is constant. How are they treated currently? No marks for guessing the current standard of care. It's with antidepressants and talk therapy with psychologists. First, I'd like to acknowledge that we recognize that there are many, many causes of PTSD and many groups seeking to help find new treatments or improve existing ones. But for the sake of simplicity, we have chosen to focus on military population and on one organization of many that are advocating for this group and for new treatments. There has been sensational work done with non-veterans by the legendary Dr. Gabor Mate, and you can gather a lot about this from his two best-selling books, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts close encounters with addiction, or when the body says no, the cost of hidden stress. First, we would like to introduce you to two outstanding gentlemen and veterans of the wars of the Middle East. Keith Abraham, a former member of the Parachute Regiment, a combat unit in the UK, and Jesse Gould, a former US Army Ranger. It is important to understand the stories of Keith and Jesse and their journey.
2: Uh, I heard about, so because I was visibly struggling. now. While I was holding on before, I was now visibly struggling. Externally, it was quite clear. My behavior had changed, um, and it it was clear to anyone that cared to look. Um, And so a a friend of mine in the US, she saw that and suggested that, you know, that there's another option, There's there is still hope. And hope is all I really need. You know, it's all. Most of us really need is a little bit of hope to just keep going. And um, so, I didn't do any research. I trust her implicitly. Um, I would also, I would always suggest people do their own research, of course, but. I was so hopeless, I trusted her implicitly. I didn't do any real research on ayahuasca. I just told my boss, um, I'd left the military by then and I was actually working for JP Morgan in London. I told my boss that I was gonna take two weeks off. I flew out to Peru and um, I w- I'd been put in contact with two local people, not, not indigenous people, just local Peruvians in a city called Tarapoto. And they very, very, very kindly gave me use of their hut in the jungle. So I had to make my way by a car from Tarapoto to a place called Chazuta, which is a jungle town. And then from Chazuta I had to get onto a, a little boat. And... Well, plus me being a military veteran, you know, being, you know, I even had to, oh, so that was an hour's car journey. It was an hour boat ride. It was an hour hike into the jungle after that. And there's no running water or electricity at that hut. So I had to carry all of my food and water with me as well. But I wasn't, I'd only been out of the military a year and a half. So carrying heavy equipment into the jungle. I'm like, well, this is what I do anyway. So it was kind of, it was I like, good? I feel back to, yeah this is my nature, this is what I can do this is my skill set so that didn't faze me at all Um, and so I did have someone that checked in on me nearby, Juan he was a cacao farmer he lived further upriver about 500 metres or so other than that I was actually left to my own devices there was a river next to the hut so I just sat by the river and spent time in nature and I was there for about 10 days and twice during that period the shaman. He, Juan had already obviously told him that I was there at some point. He came up and um, he brought this really dirty, uh, it was an old Coca-Cola bottle and it was full of this, looked like mud from the outside, really disgusting. Um, and he came up and he took out a shot glass and... Um, laid me down in the hut so he was laying down with me gave me a shot of this drink that was ayahuasca sang started singing and then everything changed um, so that that's how I found myself there um, yeah and that that is then when the catalyst kicked off
0: so so far you've heard about how Keith got to Peru And how he got to the hut and came in contact with a shaman who ultimately gave him the the mud-coloured liquid in a shot glass for him to have his psychedelic experience. But before we go into the next segment, I really, really want you to pay attention to the various changing tones and how the sound design kind of changes with Keith's kind of narration of what exactly happened during a psychedelic trip and more importantly how the mood and the timbre of music changes to suit Keats' kind of journey um, through the experience it's very hard to explain you just have to listen to this here is that segment again
2: like i said i'd had this awakening prior to my ayahuasca experience so there was a shift but like i said it was actually difficult it 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 helped in many many ways but it also was quite difficult and challenging for me so i didn't really have much of a vocabulary yet but once i had laid down on the floor in that hut with my shaman and he started singing I, and, and I went there, in, you mentioned um, trust. You're absolutely right. It, it does take an, a, a certain amount of trust. You're, you're right. And um, for certain other people, that can be quite difficult. I, all I know is that I was hopeless. And so anything that was even potentially helpful, I was going to go and give it my very best shot. And so I went, I went with an open heart. I went with an open mind. And I just trusted that something valuable would come from it and so it's it was obviously night when the ceremonies took place and the songs were the songs are a kind of vehicle uh, a vehicle f- to take you further into the experience that the medicine um, brings about and The way that I remember it really is that I, I lay down, closed my eyes. I started listening to him sing, and I was thinking. I got to a point where I was thinking, actually, this is—is this a bit of a waste of time because I don't feel anything? But it's not unpleasant because his songs are—they're lovely songs. I love listening to him, but nothing's actually happening. Next thing I know, I just recognise that I've woken up, but I haven't woken up here in this reality I'd woken up in the realm of what I now call spirit and so this is this is a massive shift just even waking up in that environment and it being real to, to my so that to me the experiencer that was as real as this is I believe it now is as real as this is but for me that was in itself shocking but wonderful and exciting and incredible. Uh, and so I recognized that I was actually unconscious in my physical body, but I was awake in the realm of spirit. And uh, in the realm of spirit, I can f- do as I please. I, was, I became aware of an understanding of time and space, and I watched... The planets revolve around our star, our solar system, and um, but then at one point, this is actually in the second ceremony. At one point, a voice uh, came out of the darkness and said, "Have you have you finished?" As alluding to, "Have I finished playing?" And I I recognised it as a voice of authority. Um, It wasn't stern; it was just plain. Have you finished? And I thought, ah, ah, this is it. Okay, so I'm here to work. This is it. Yes, I have finished playing. Um, I'm ready to do some work. That was my non-vocal response, non-verbal response. Then I woke up, I just woke up again in a classroom, like a Victorian classroom. I was sat at a desk like this, and there was a blackboard in front of me, and then there was a woman teacher She was clearly the teacher. I was alone, but she was the teacher. And I recognised that she was the spirit of the medicine manifested as a woman in front of me. And again, so I accepted that she was the authority and that she was the medicine. I intuitively understood that she was the medicine itself talking to me. And she highlighted... So the way that it worked was that she would highlight things in my life that were causing me trouble. So my behaviour being one of them and my responses to certain stimuli in society and relationships. So she would show me, I would relive experiences in my life, be it conflict, be it heartbreak, any sort of Something that I was resistant to or found difficult in my life, but they were normally conflict between myself and someone and another, or how I dealt with heartbreak or adversity in some in some way. She would, I would relive it with her, and she would ask me if I felt that that way, the way that I had dealt with it, was still valuable and rewarding. And I would, having relived it, then I would say no. No, that's not healthy because normally I would become aggressive and violent and angry and I recognized that it wasn't healthy for me. So then she would ask me if I would like to learn how to change that behavior and live differently and respond differently. And if I said yes, she would then take my place in the experience and I could observe her as me experiencing that conflict, that adversity. And she would then respond in a healthier way. I hope this makes sense. I hope I'm articulating myself correctly, sufficiently. She would respond in a healthier way that would resolve the matter in a in as healthy way as you as anyone could expect. Having observed that, she would then ask me, "Do you agree that that is a healthier way of behaving?" If I said yes, she would then teach me how she did it, step by step. And then if I accepted that I'd understood those lessons, she would put me back into that situation as myself. And I would have to, as I was being tested by this any whatever stimuli, stimulants, I would have to remember each of the lessons and respond in a more healthy way each time. And if I passed that test, then I could move on to another test and another lesson in a different environment. If I failed, she very patiently said i think we probably need to do that one again and i would say yes i know (laughs) yeah because i would have resorted to anger and violence or something frustration and and we would redo it again and she would revisit the lesson very patiently are you ready to go back and be tested yes i am okay here we go and i would revisit it again and the same situation would be played out in front of me and i would have to manage my emotions, manage my ego and respond from a place of compassion and forgiveness and gratitude and patience and and love. Love is what we're talking about, trying to respond from a place of love. But the tests were specifically, can you have compassion for someone else? Can you have compassion for yourself? If you can have compassion for yourself and someone else, the next step is that you you can learn to forgive yourself and someone else. After you've learned to have compassion and forgive someone else and yourself, you can become grateful for the experiences that they present you and that you yourself experience. And then once you become grateful, everything changes. Because trauma, you can become grateful for the traumatic experience. And once you can do that, you no longer label it as traumatic. It's just a learning experience. And therefore, everything changed. But I had to, this was lifetimes. This is how it felt like me in this in this spirit world. It felt like lifetimes of lessons, not hours. In this realm, it was obviously many hours. But in that, it was lifetimes of learning that I that I've had now. And so it was incredibly valuable. And um, when I became too tired and I couldn't take any more lessons, and I was and I was failing the more advanced tests more often. She asked me if I was too tired to carry on. And eventually I said, oh, yes, I am a bit tired. And then I woke up and I was stone sober. I woke up and it was early morning. And, uh, yeah, I was sober. No grogginess, no slowly waking up. I just woke up, bolt upright. I was like, oh, okay, life is different now. I don't behave the way that I used to. I now behave differently. And uh, in a nutshell... That's my experience with
0: ayahuasca. And why did Keith have to go? Okay, so that was episode seven of the psychedelic series. It still gives me goosebumps to actually know that we were able to create such an amazing episode. And all thanks to Keith for sharing his journey. Now, from this episode, let's travel to the second episode of the series. A very critical piece of history, long forgotten, is highlighted in this episode. And once again, a stirring piece by an Indian film composer, used with permission from the label, formed the background to this. I think you should listen for yourself to make a determination. For me, this is a very personal one too, because the undertones of the massacre at Wounded Knee reminded me of a similar episode in my own country's colonial oppression and an event that happened at Jallianwala Bagh in 1919. But having said all that, I think the sound design for this particular event was so much inspired by what the political and the societal situation might have been at that time. Take a listen.
3: Mooney was uh, was very interested in this and went and collected the songs and talked to the prophet who had had originally um, channeled them. Uh, But he was very worried that this was going to um, end in uh, conflict that um, the Native Americans were inevitably going to lose. And indeed it did. As we
0: have discussed, the white settlers were fearful of this primitive ritual that was in direct opposition to their own religious beliefs And it was so foreign and utterly incomprehensible to them. So much so that they forced the natives into reservations and banned the use of peyote. As a result, the practice in the use of peyote became much more clandestine, gradually moving it from an open communal ceremony over a bonfire to an event that would happen inside a closed teepee to keep it a secret from the white invaders. Predictably, Events around this time made the natives more anxious about inviting new people in. So we now know how the teepee ceremonies came to be. But did we actually say why?
1: Let's go back to the ghost dance in Wavaka. According to the teachings of Wavaka, the ghost dance ceremony would reunite the spirits of the dead with those of the living. And the power of these spirits could be harnessed in battle against white settlers and their armies. Though the practice of the ghost dance originated with the Paiute tribe of Nevada, it quickly spread to other Indian tribes in the Southwest. Wavaka's most influential prophecy was that the white man would be forever banished from the land and that the buffalo, which had been hunted to near extinction by white settlers, would return and bring with it a lasting revival of the Native American way of life. While the natives considered the land to be communal, the white settlers were spurred on by Manifest Destiny, an idea that proclaimed that the white settlers were divinely ordained to settle the entire continent of North America. Several wars followed between the white settlers and the Native Americans, and Ghost Dance became the rallying cry behind the Native Americans' stand against the U.S. Army. The last of the resistance that was initiated by Wavaka and the Ghost Dance happened at the Battle of Bighorn. Though Wavaka was the originator of the ghost dance, it had become so widespread that other tribes had adopted as their rallying cry. Let's travel across the plains to another Native American tribe, the Hunkpapa Lakota tribe. The Hunkpapa Lakota tribe was led by the man we know as Sitting Bull. On December 15th, 1890, 40 policemen arrived at Sitting Bull's house to arrest him. These were not white policemen, mind you, They were Native American policemen in the service of the U.S. Army. When Sitting Bull refused to comply, the police used force on him. His soldiers and the tribes were enraged. Catch the bear, another Lakota tribesman, shouldered his rifle and shot a lieutenant who reacted by firing his revolver into the chest of Sitting Bull. Another police officer, Red Tomahawk, shot Sitting Bull in the head and he dropped dead to the ground. After Sitting Bull's death, 200 members of his Hunkpapa band, fearful of reprisals, fled Standing Rock to join another tribe under the leadership of Chief Spotted Elk on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation.
0: Spotted Elk and his tribe, along with 38 Hunkpapa, left the Cheyenne River Reservation on December 23rd to journey to Pine Ridge Indian Reservation to seek shelter with Chief of another tribe, Red Cloud. This set off a wave of alarm across the enemy lines and the US Army grew increasingly concerned about another standoff. It is said that Colonel James Forsyth intercepted spotted elk and his tribe which had now grown to 300 members due to the inclusion of the Lakota tribe whose chief sitting bull was now dead. They escorted these tribes to Wounded Knee Creek and a camp was made with the intention to ship the natives by train To another part of the country to live on a reservation. What happened the next morning is a matter of intense debate. Small disagreements broke into minor arguments between the army troops and the natives over searching and confiscating any guns that the natives had. The army retrieved 38 rifles and when it came to one deaf tribal man who did not speak English, and who refused to give up his gun, a scuffle broke up that ended in a bullet being fired. In a fit of rage fueled by panic, the army soldiers indiscriminately opened fire. Some men and around 120 women and children ran through the grassland and were hunted down and killed by the US Army. The total carnage at Wounded Knee was in excess of 300. Despite the gory nature, the American public were largely supportive of removing the natives from their land. Here's the thing. All through this, the white settlers had perceived that the dried peyote buttons turned the natives into savages. Even though the peyote had already had a long and significant history, its stupendously serendipitous journey was only just beginning. Hey, before we go to the next segment in the episode, I want to remind you, to go to our website, scrapspodcast.com, and sign up to our newsletter. In 2022, Jojo and I are going to make some serious effort to communicate to each one of you through our newsletters in addition to our podcast episodes. The best way to get all the information is to go to our website once again and sign up with your email. Next, We wanted to play some of the other small segments in the series where we specifically decided that the sound design is going to play a huge, huge part in providing that additional oomph to the proceedings. One of the key things that we had decided was that we were not going to be opinionated as narrators and always pose questions to the audience once we narrated a particular occurrence from history. This next one is one such example. Here we talk about Aldous Huxley using all of his charisma to influence Humphrey Osmond in Canada into having his first psychedelic experience. Mind you, Aldous Huxley was a writer and was a regular reader of a Hibbard journal, a scientific journal, and contacts Humphrey Osmond for the psychedelic trip. So, was it good or was it bad? you make the decision, but the sound will guide you through exactly that. Aldous Huxley was watching all of this and at once wrote a letter to Humphrey Osmond and learned that Humphrey Osmond was going to visit California soon. So Huxley suggested to Osmond that if he were to be visiting Los Angeles, Huxley would very much be interested in ingesting mescaline and have an experience to liberate his mind. These experiences are well chronicled in history, and Huxley's influence in bringing mescaline to public attention and cult following cannot be understated. Huxley, a graduate of Eton College in Oxford, had a very privileged upbringing and called it as a drug of the elite. While there were instances where this was clarified to mean that mescaline was a drug only for the people who wanted to open their minds, liberate their consciousness, and break down their ego, the damage was already done. There are many instances where unfortunate usage of words have led people wanting the experience more. In fact, the worst part was, as we will come to later on in the podcast, that these plant-based substances or their synthesized cousins aren't even addictive, yet the perception and intrigue that mescaline created was one of cult status. Huxley's drug of the elite made people believe that they would liberate themselves from the shackles of the mind, bordering on religious mysticism, and as a result would make them realize that the world was beautiful. When science meets philosophy meets art, it took some disproportionate dimensions in the next decade that the world had to grapple with. Now that the world knew about mescaline through Aldous Huxley's writings we had to introduce LSD at the end of episode two. But before that, we also had to try to lay the groundwork for what's to come in episode three and four. So just notice the next segment at how the ominous guitar gives way to the haunting orchestra. The world was in the throes of the Second World War. Bletchley Park, the place where Enigma code was broken by the codebreakers, intercepted a radio transmission that scopolamine was given at very high doses to induce a sense of scariness and to make prisoners of war speak the truth, and that Nazi doctors were en route to testing another crystalline substance, mescaline. It was rumoured that Nazis got hold of mescaline, which was made by Merck, a German pharmaceutical company, and were trying to use it as a truth drug. One of their notorious scientists was Kurt Blom, the Deputy Surgeon General of the Third Reich, who spearheaded the mescaline exposure in concentration camps. And you would not expect what happened to Kurt Blom after the end of the Second World War. We will come to that in the next episode. But coming back to mescaline. Mescaline, when used by the Nazis to dose it to the prisoners of war, made the prisoners of war really friendly to the Nazis. How is this even possible? Well, this is not the first time that humankind had discovered that mescaline had triggered a sense of empathy and community. The Native American tribes had long used it, and the Native American church, which had just been formed a few years ago, knew this as well. Well, anyways, the Nazis dropped the experiment with mescaline as a truth drug. So the social and research use with mescaline continued long after the Second World War, culminating in the clinical research of Osman, Hoffer and Smithies and the eventual dosing of Aldous Huxley almost a decade later. But in the 1950s, a tiger emerged to douse the pussycat. The tiger was another molecule derived from an ergot fungus called as lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD. LSD was so potent that only a tenth of a microgram was able to provide the same effect as 400 milligrams of mescaline. And mescaline became an afterthought once LSD gained prominence, so much so that it fueled many things that would leave a lasting impact on society. Here is our chief mescaline expert, Mike J. again, detailing how CIA after the Second World War, took over the legacy of testing psychedelic substances and fueled the 1960s counterculture. CIA funded a number of clandestine research studies. Those were some seriously profound experiences while editing and putting together these episodes for you in the Psychedelic Series. Now, for the last segment of the episode, to one of my favorite episodes in the entire series which is episode 4 which again was titled as oh lsd my problem child one of the critical pieces that we wanted to bring out is the dark side of psychedelic experimentation that existed in the 40s 50s and the 60s the key part of that story is bringing to light the story of a clandestine operation called as mk Ultra. so for the next segment you will hear the sinister dark passage of history and how the sound design had to kind of mirror that. Our ingoing view was that if one was listening to the episode with your eyes closed, they should be transported to being a fly on the wall to all of these happenings. Happenings that were dark, but once that as an onlooker, you would have actually felt helpless and couldn't do anything as anything Everything at the time was shrouded in mystery and secrecy, all under the pretext of protecting the nation. And it wasn't just that. MKUltra, as the project was called, was the culmination of two earlier projects, Bluebird and Artichoke. And another drug history expert, Mike Jay, from whom we have heard extensively, concurs with Stephen. In Mike's book on mescaline, He recounts that OSS, Office of Strategic Services, the very same agency that employed Al-Habid, was watching the Nazi scientists' movements. In fact, Kurt Blom ordered the destruction of all laboratory equipment and was arrested by the Allied forces. From here, Kurt Blom is said to have negotiated with the Americans and the dark alley starts right here. And there was a perfect alignment of ideals between Kurt Blom and the OSS, which later became the CIA. Here is Stephen Kinzer again. And now to the introduction of the villain of episode four, Sidney Gottlieb. And just pay attention to Jojo's masterful narration and how the sound just blends in in the background with Jojo's ominous narration.
1: Sidney Gottlieb is not your prototypical villain. He seems like the least likely candidate for the sinister moniker Poisoner-in-Chief. In fact, I can imagine his high school standouts would have been more like most likely to collect stamps or budding environmentalist. Gottlieb was born in New York in 1918 to Hungarian Jewish parents. With a club foot and a stutter, he was somewhat introverted as a young boy. He developed a love of science and graduated with distinction from the University of Wisconsin Madison. From there, he moved to California where he earned his PhD in chemistry at Caltech. He had a wife and children, lived in an austere home with little in the way of modern conveniences or comfort, pursued folk dancing rigorously, and led a worldwide life of service after hours. Work hours presented an entirely different man. Here was a man whose own family would have likely died at the hands of the Nazis had they not escaped, who had no problem recruiting and employing the same Nazi scientists who developed the mechanisms of genocide. While in the light of day, the U.S. and other governments were searching for, capturing, trying, and punishing Nazi war criminals— They were operating an entirely different program under the cover of darkness. Convinced that the Nazis had identified a drug that allowed them to control people's minds, Gottlieb and his team wanted to get their hands on anything that they knew. To that end, Gottlieb recruited scientists who seemed more likely to end up at Nuremberg than to find themselves on the pathway toward American citizenship. Operation Paperclip was a talent scouting and recruiting program that allowed the U.S. research programs to identify valuable assets in the field of chemistry, electronics, biological and chemical weaponry, rocketry, and more. Individuals with unique talents and skill sets had their files marked with a paperclip to indicate that they were to be given special treatment and a blind eye was to be turned on whatever nefarious activities they had performed as members of the Nazi party. For more than 1,600 Nazi scientists and engineers, their one-way ticket to prison turned into deportations to friendly countries, including the United States, where they could continue their work that they had previously started for the Third Reich. Kurt Blom, the Nazi scientist responsible for all biological warfare research sponsored by the Wehrmacht and the SS, benefited from the Operation Paperclip and its successor programs. He was eventually employed by the U.S. Army. His cooperation with MKUltra and other programs significantly advanced Gottlieb's progress. He certainly gives a different meaning to the saying, if you can't beat him, join him.
0: How was it? Did you get to experience the dark alleys of how things were at this time in history? We had this fantastic segment on Biller Schuster, the CIA black side in Germany, about how It was a decoy for some of the gruesome experiments that happened in the basement of the villa. And now from there, we have to go to even more gruesome happenings like the forced prison experimentation and for the students of 20th century America or avid watchers of the History Channel, the involvement of Whitey Bulger, the Bostonian gang boss, should probably give some chills down your spine. Remember, Whitey Bulger was a petty criminal when he was forced to take part in the prison experiments under MKUltra. We will never know what impact it had on him, but the violence that followed in his life is probably not coincidental. Here is that section from episode 4. The remote location at the end of Waldorf Lane provided the privacy necessary for the villa's use as a black site all the while maintaining the appearance of a country estate visited by successful and important members of German and foreign society.
3: In the first place, on the matter of medical ethics, I believe that uh, Gottlieb and the people he worked believed that they were operating in a realm outside ethics. They believed that given the urgency of the national security challenge they believed they faced, The loss of a few lives or even a few hundred lives, destruction of human lives would be a very small price to pay. And they exempted themselves from the Nuremberg Code, which was only a few years old, and all other medical restrictions uh, that would have applied in a normal ethical environment. Second is the question of Gottlieb as a scientist. Actually, he was a terrible scientist. He did not follow any rigorous protocols. Everything was kind of a shot in the dark. He would try to mix uh, sensory deprivation with hypnotism and then pull people from hyperactivity uh, stimulated by amphetamines into a comatose state and then try to give them some other drug while they were in the transition phase. Just throw everything out there and see what might work. Very few protocols were kept.
1: To call the operators of MKUltra scientists is perhaps a little like calling a crack dealer a neighborhood pharmacist. Subjects were experimented upon without anything close to informed consent. Experiments frequently and repeatedly crossed the line from science to torture. Documentation was discouraged, and what little documentation was made was written in code was later destroyed by Gottlieb and his boss. Much of the little information we do have on MKUltra is the result of carefully reconstructed forensic accounts supported by expense reports and personal testimony. While officers involved in MKUltra were sworn to secrecy to the grave and beyond, Kinzer reports that several people have reached out to him after the 2019 publication of Poisoner in chief They reported to him that they believed a family member had been a victim of the program. By Kinzer's estimation, many of those stories fit the M.O. and are likely to be true.
3: Now, there was one interesting case of a person who was a subject in a prison experiment uh, who later did figure out what had happened to him. And this was a guy who later became a kind of notorious criminal that was whitey bulger the famous gangster from boston so when whitey bulger was just a street thug in boston he was arrested in his 20s and sent to the state penitentiary in atlanta georgia there a doctor named carl pfeiffer who was a contractor for mk Ultra. he was working for sydney godley was carrying out lsd experiments uh, Gottlieb apparently wanted to know what would be the effect of dosages over a long, sustained period. Um, Prisoners were recruited, among them Whitey Bulger, and told not only that they would get favorable treatment, but that they would be contributing to research aimed at finding a cure for schizophrenia. At one point, Bulger, by his own account, begged to be taken out of this experiment. It was too overwhelming for him. He couldn't sleep. He was seeing wild delusions because he was given LSD every single day for months. Uh, but he said that Dr. Pfeiffer kept saying, you're one of our best subjects. We're almost approaching a cure. You have to keep going. Years later, 20 years later, Whitey Bulger, now a gang boss in Boston, reads about MK Ultra. And he figures out that's the same Dr. Pfeiffer. And he told the members of his gang in Boston, I'm going to go to Atlanta. I'm going to find that guy and I'm going to kill him. Now he didn't do that, but it shows you that at least one person put it all together and had emotions of that intensity.
1: So MK Ultra dosed prison inmates. And already we heard Stephen Kinzer mention the experience of Whitey Bulger, a Bostonian and a gangster. But just when you think the story hits the height of gore, it only gets more savage.
0: The savage part that Jojo's is referring to there is the Frank Olson episode. It is hard to explain what the plans were for us, but we knew that once we wrote the script, conducted the interview with Stephen Kinzer, we knew that this episode is both just horrific and atrocious at the same time. If this was a movie plot, you would need a spectacular villain to play the part and Sidney Gottlieb was just the right man for the job. Unfortunately, he was a person who existed in reality. Notice the serious dark tones that amplify the narration to bring out the deception An absolute lack of integrity in the next segment.
1: It was not unusual for subjects, human and animal, to die during drug experiments. We know of one instance where a scientist's conscience finally got the better of him.
3: Well, first of all, you're quite right that uh, LSD experiments under MKL ran the gamut from fully voluntary to horrifically coercive. uh, So... Gottlieb had no hesitation about dosing people uh, without their knowledge or against their will. Uh, The Frank Olson case is one of the great enduring mysteries of the MKUltra project. Uh, This was the most secret project at the CIA. Uh, If anybody who understood what MKUltra was had been allowed to speak publicly, that revelation would have been devastating it could have destroyed the cia and it would have undermined the united states position in the world uh, in unpredictable ways it, it was not named mk ultra for nothing it was the ultra secret and i was understood by the senior officers at the cia to be this after all if you could find a way to control the minds of other human beings then the prize would be Nothing less than global mastery. So going that far, they were right. They just were uh, ex- expecting that they actually would be able to find it. That was the, the one uh, little problem in their in their theory. So Frank Olson was one of the very small number of chemists who was in the inner circle of MKUltra. Uh, and his specialty was aerosols. He was uh, transforming liquid poisons into aerosol poisons. Uh, He carried out experiments in which if he arrived back at work the next morning and all the monkeys were dead, that would be considered a success. I think this kind of got to him after a while. And uh, During the summer of 1953, he was in Britain, apparently watching uh, dope people being dosed with these uh, toxins that he had developed. He traveled around in Europe, and at least in one case, He apparently saw somebody die under one of the poisons that he had uh, developed. In any case, he developed um, second thoughts about the project. And he told his superiors that he wanted to quit. Not only did he want to leave MKUltra, but he wanted to leave the CIA. We now know that he actually asked one of his friends, do you know a good journalist? As soon as it became clear to uh, the other people around him, and particularly to Sidney Gottlieb, uh, the director of MK Ultra, that uh, one of the people in the inner core didn't seem reliable anymore. Uh, that was a matter of intense concern.
0: It wasn't just expendables that were unwittingly dosed during MK Ultra. Frank Olson attended a private meeting of some of the program's top officials. During the meeting, he was surreptitiously dosed with LSD by none other than Gottlieb himself. Needless to say, it was not a good trip. Even after the drug wore off, Olsen was a changed man. In addition to the crisis of conscience he was experiencing over his work, he felt that he could no longer trust his own mind. Olsen confided some of his fears and doubts to his wife. Although he could never reveal details to her, and doing so would mean admitting his role in despicable experiments. He displayed a restlessness and self-doubt that could not be ignored. He expressed a strong desire to resign from his work with the CIA, both to his wife and to his own boss, Colonel Rouette. MKUltra leaders were concerned. Not so much about Olsen's well-being, but about what he might divulge. John Stubbs, an officer at Fort Detrick, escorted Olsen home and convinced Olson and his wife Alice that he and his colleagues would get him the help he needed. They convinced him to fly to Maryland, to New York, to see a doctor who would certainly be able to help. Olson was accompanied by his boss, Colonel Roweck, and Robert Lashbrook, Sidney Gottlieb's deputy. The doctor, Harold Abramson, was affiliated with the CIA and had previously worked with Olsen on an aerosolization project. The bottom line, Olsen was a risk to the program. At 2 a.m. on Saturday, November 28, 1953, Frank Olsen fell to his death from the 13th floor room at Hotel Statler. The impact of the fall left Olsen clinging to life with just a few breaths left in his lungs. The manager of the hotel was at Olsen's side when he died and reported that he tried to mumble something. Lashbrook, Olsen's CIA babysitter and Gottlieb spy, was rooming with Olsen at the hotel. When police located him, Lashbrook was sitting on the hotel room toilet. The circumstances surrounding Olson's death are suspect to say the least. Lashbrook reports hearing very little and noticing even less. The hotel switchboard operator made a statement to the police that she had connected a call from Olson and Lashbrook's room to none other than Dr. Harold Abramson. Perhaps being professionally curious, the operator remained on the line for the entire call. She reports that the voice of the hotel guest said, well, he's gone. And the reply was, well, that's too bad. The logistics of Olsen's alleged suicide doesn't add up. Finally, to cap it all off, we just had to circle back to how such dark experimentation led to widespread social and recreational use in the 60s. And this is where our guest Stephen Kinzer was masterful. All we had to do was to let the sound design amplify the message. Halfway through the segment that you will listen to next, notice how the staccato stings come in when Jojo's narration starts. Kinzer sets it up before that and Jojo explains it even more and gives the listener a point to ponder and then introduces the next segment and at this juncture, noticed how the sound design turns from the continuation of the staccato to an inclusion of the boson and the bass, which takes over to deepen the dark side of MKUltra and the experimentation that happened during this time.
3: But there's a whole other aspect to his LSD work that I think is probably the least expected result of his work. One of the things that he wanted to do was see how LSD uh, would uh, work on people who were fully knowledgeable and that were volunteers in a normal clinical and medical uh, setting. So uh, he sent, uh, the CIA didn't have the ability to carry out these tests. So Gottlieb set up a couple of bogus medical foundations that were actually CIA fronts. These foundations then contacted Hospitals and clinics around the United States and told them very explicitly, we're experimenting with LSD, that psychoactive drug that was invented in the 1940s by Albert Hoffman. We're going to send you uh, a supply of it. You will advertise uh, for volunteers. You will pay them with money we will give you. You administer it and then uh, we pay you for this and you just write reports of what happened. So almost overnight, an entire market grew up from hospitals that wanted to take advantage of this new source of funding. And who were among the very first volunteers to come in and ask to try this new drug?
1: It is true even today. While cutting edge research happens where the money is, the alternate is also true. One that most academics will not be shy of admitting. The academics go where the money is. So if the CIA had set up medical foundations testing LSD, all of which appeared reputable to the onlooker, why the hell not, was the thinking. At this point, the whole thing requires reflection of a really gray area. It's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, but at the time, in the late 1950s and into the 1960s, should the researchers have paused and thought for a second about what the source of money is? Think about it as you listen on. So one such testing facility was in California in Palo Alto at the Veterans Affairs Hospital. Ken Kesey was a volunteer in the studies funded by the CIA and had taken both mescaline and LSD multiple times to supplement his income while taking courses at Stanford. Kesey didn't just stop there. He also moonlighted as the janitor at the VA. In fact, that's how he even got to be a subject in the CIA study in the first place. Here is the author in his own words.
3: It all started in 1960 at a psychiatric hospital south of San Francisco. Kesey, then a student at Stanford University, took part in a military experiment on the effects of mind-altering drugs. After a number of those students came out with a wild look in their eye, they said, close up that room and don't let anybody else go back in that room. And that's when I found that my key fit the doctor's office.
1: Well, this is the place where the events that led to the defining of what psychedelic means plays out. Remember what Osman wrote to Aldous Huxley? To fathom hell or soar angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic. So please pinch yourself and let's see what happened from this janitor's over-exuberance.
0: So that's it. I hope you liked it. I hope we have convinced you that... Sound and sound design is an integral part of telling a story that we as scientists are normally not used to. And I hope that we will be able to bring many such stories to you, not just in the area of psychedelics, but in areas that are closer to home. Wish you all a very happy new year and We look forward to talking to you about many more exciting things in January of next year.